Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have me, Sacred Stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome, everybody, to the latest installment of the Anti-Essentialism series. As I mentioned last episode... We're currently in between season one and season two of the podcast, and so we thought it was an opportune moment to replay the anti-essentialism series that we did last summer. We're going to replay it in a linear way so that all of the episodes kind of line up and make a coherent argument. As I mentioned in the previous episode, these, these interviews sort of appeared smattered throughout the summer and into the early fall. And so I wanted to put them together in a coherent back-to-back sort of way so that you can devour it as a series if you so choose. Episode 1 featured Vivek Chibber. We talked about class and Marx's conception of capitalism and how oppression and exploitation fit within that narrative. It was a really crucial uh, grounding uh, episode, I think, because we're talking about what most people refer to as the Holy Trinity of class, race, gender, sexuality, identity, and all the rest of it. This next installment is going to feature an interview with Cedric Johnson. I talked with Cedric early on in season one of Dead Pundit Society. I enjoyed it so much, I replayed it since then. So many of you will have heard it by now, but it's always worth revisiting. We talked about Cedric's article that appeared in Catalyst Journal called The Panthers Can't Save Us Now. And it was a brave critique of the way in which the black power moment is being resuscitated as an aesthetic feature of, you know, radical pseudo militant politics, the way in which you're seeing Beyonce rocking natural hair, you're seeing certain Democratic candidates allude to aspects of the black power moment, but without any of the radical uh, political and economic agenda that came along with it at that time. And so Cedric is going to point out some of these inconsistencies. He's going to critique the way in which we use a very linear notion of history to talk about race and class. Uh, His fundamental insight is that institutions matter. (laughs) Politics matter and history matters. And so projecting our notion of race and anti-racism back onto the past or projecting it forward through history into the present It's just not a good way to assess the realities of racial oppression and exploitation. Therefore, we're powerless to do anything about it. Cedric is going to give us a great critique on that. Everybody stay tuned. Thanks for tuning into the Anti-Essentialism series. If you like what you hear, hit us up on Patreon. Find us at www.patreon.com slash deadpundits. Subscribe for $5 or more. You'll get access to all of the B-sides. We have a lot of extended content over there for subscribers and a little thank you note for supporting the new left agenda. Everybody stay tuned in the coming week or two. Season two is going to be debuting. My new co-host Amy is fantastic. In the meantime, enjoy Cedric. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Joining me today on the Dead Pundit Society is Cedric Johnson. He's an associate professor of political science and African-American studies at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Many of you will know him as a frequent contributor to Jacobin Magazine, 
He's also the author of a really great article that appears in the latest issue of Catalyst, which is a brand new journal of socialist theory and strategy that's been released under the Jacobin imprint. That article is called The Panthers Can't Save Us Now, Anti-Policing Struggles and the Limits of Black Power. So go check that out. Uh, Lastly, that piece is in some senses a restatement of the themes from one of his books, Revolutionaries to Race Leaders, Black Power and the Making of African-American Politics. That book has been out since 2007, but it will be undoubtedly new to most of my listeners. Cedric, quite a resume. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Pleasure's all mine. I'm excited to have you on the show. Uh, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about The Catalyst Project. This is a brand new journal, as most of you will know. Uh, it's coming out from the Jacobin imprint. It's a more of a kind of a scholarly, peer-reviewed setup than the magazine is. Uh, how did you get involved in that project? And, and tell us a little bit about the specific political and intellectual contribution that you all are seeking to make there. Yes, yeah, so I, uh, I did a... Um I was scheduled to do a talk for uh, historical materialism. Um, I guess it was 2015. And uh, it originally was supposed to be a panel discussion. It was organized by uh, Paul Heidemann. And, um, you know, three weeks out, one of the panelists backed out. So it was down to two people. And then the day of, the other panelists backed out. And so Paul asked me if I could give like a full-on lecture. So I ended the conference. That was the closing plenary. Um, and I basically lectured on, um, you know, I talked about some of the, the, the problems as I saw it with not just Black Lives Matter, but some of the, the, the tensions within the, uh, you know, forces that were organizing against police violence and the ways in which it recalled aspects of black power in a way that was not so critical, nostalgic. And I think setting the, the uh, these campaigns up for some trouble and problems in the future. So. I started there, right? You know, gave this talk. I think it was around forty-five minutes to an hour-long talk, and then it was it was podcast. And uh, uh, Vivek Cheber heard it and and basically, you know, reached out to me and asked if I would be willing to commit some of that to paper. And so that was the beginning of the connection um, with Catalyst, right? Catalyst was right. still in the works at that point. That's back in twenty fifteen. So this has been in the works for a while. Right, right. And then I ended up giving a talk out at UCLA and so I sat with uh with Bob Brenner, who's the other co editor, and we talked more about, you know, some of my ideas and what I wanted to do uh in this this first piece. And so it just it kind of slowly came together. I mean what I usually do um, even if I'm not working actively on on a, a a project, like I hadn't intended to write about policing struggles. But, you know, since since like Trayvon Martin, at least I've been, you know, taking copious notes, uh, you know, free writing, you know, things that I was thinking at certain moments. And so this is kind of like, a you know, everything coming together uh, in this one piece. Um, and this also I should I should mention, right, is going to be extended into a much longer you know, book length argument. I'm not sure how long of a book it's going to be just yet. It may just be a short like 100 pager. But I want to I want to expand this out a bit more because I think, you know, I think it's important that we debate, you know, what is what is the moment that we're in as far as like the policing crisis? How did we get here? Um, what are the central motors of, you know, the kind of policing that we we are we're stuck with at this moment? And, um, you know, I think we got to We got to like debate. Right. If we don't, then we'll end up stuck in the same the same place. That's absolutely right. So. 
just to backtrack and or to build on that a little bit, I should say, uh, you're you're a, you're a member. At least I'm putting you in this category. I, let me know if you think this is fair or not. But I, I would say you are a member of a fairly well-defined group of intellectuals uh, that are pushing back against some of the dominant trends in African American studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, prominent in that group, uh, most of people in our on, on the show uh, listeners here will know Adolph Reed Jr. Right. He's one of the luminaries. I got a lot of fans of him uh, in my listener uh, group, I know for sure. And your work really takes up many of those themes mm-hmm. of this earlier generation from the you know 60s through the 90s. And you update those into the, the, the aughts and, and beyond and, and so on. And you, you've really put some good you know, historical and theoretical meat on that critical framework that, you know, Adolf uh, forged, you know, say in that collect in that class notes collection, for example, where he's talking about brokerage politics and, and that right. type of thing. Right. So tell us a little bit about what that project means to you and, and, and how you see yourself in that lineage, because you come, you, you yourself come from a slightly different lineage yourself uh, at the university of Maryland, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I did my graduate work at the university of Maryland uh, college park, I also did a master's degree in um, black studies before that uh, at Ohio State University. And, um, you know, I came to Adolph's work when I was at Maryland. I was taking, doing an independent study with um, Linda Faye Williams, who's a phenomenal mm. professor, right? She passed yeah, yeah. away yeah. Uh, in the early aughts. And she was like, you know, uh, a godmother to so many of us at Maryland at that time. And, she had an interesting history herself, right? She had been a professor at, at Howard University. She was a University of Chicago PhD. Um, I think for a moment she studied under William Julius Wilson. And so she was somebody who taught uh, welfare state uh, social policy um, during the, uh, the 1990s. And in this independent study with her, it was a moment when, I think this was like the, the spring of, of 94, uh, maybe spring of 95. And she said to me, she said, you know, a lot of things you're saying here, you know, you should really read Adolf Reed's work. Right. And so ah. I, I was familiar with Reed as a figure and I had mm-hmm. read, I think a couple of things he had written for the village voice. Right. But at that particular moment, I just dove headlong into the things he was, he was writing. And uh, what became clear is that he was offering the kind of class analysis of black political life that I was struggling towards. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had been doing it since the 1970s, right? right. Since he was a grad student. And so... Um, so you came to that kind of organically. You were already working your way in that direction. It wasn't yeah. so much an epiphany for you as it was kind of a way of, uh, you know, maybe he was formulating the thoughts uh, in a more uh, coherent and comprehensive way that you were already kind of developing in your, in your head from your own, uh, you know, your own experience. Right. And, he, you know, his his uh, thinking, of course, was much clearer and much more grounded in, you know, the, the traditions of, of uh, I guess, at that you know, his early work was more sort of Frankfurt School oriented, um, at least, you know, um, engaged with Marcuse. Mm-hmm. But um, I uh, yeah, it was it was it was intuitive. Part of it was, uh, I think, the result of having grown up in Louisiana uh, when I did, part of it was being a student at a historically black college and having a few faculty members who who did offer like a Marxist perspective in the mm-hmm. classroom. One guy in particular uh, named Gary Clark, uh, who was a great professor for me as an undergrad. So I think I was struggling towards that. But I think, you know, with, with Reed's work, it was clarifying. Right. It was like, you know, this is what he, he gave a set of tools 
um, which are fairly straightforward, right? Let's talk about black political life like we would any other group of, of people, right? Let's assume that, you know, um, that all of the same ideological diversity is there, the class contradictions, right. all these things are present, and let's talk about them, right? And so, you know, Reed, Reed has been like the, I guess, the keeper of the flame, you know, for yeah, decades yeah. in that regard. But, but luckily, you know, over the last few decades, a number of us who finished grad school, some of us who are not, you know, academics, have been, um, you know, expanding and, and building on, on, on what he was doing, right? And there's a whole host of us now, uh, so much so. We actually did an issue of uh, Labor Studies Journal, a special issue, yeah, yeah. Uh, symposium that reflected on Adolph's work. And so people like Larry Bennett and uh, Timothy Weaver and others are included okay. in that. In that, um, Your piece is a, is a I, I'll try to post that. I know it's behind a paywall. We'll see if I can get around that maybe a little bit. Don't tell anybody. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, for the academics out there who have access to libraries, I'll post that article, a link to it, because it's only uh, six or seven pages, but yeah, it's one of the best... To- your your piece is one of the best uh, summaries of Adolf's work, you know, and the real it gets to the real essence of his project in, in a great way. I, I enjoyed that a lot. Thanks, thanks. Yeah. So yeah, that, it's it's exciting to see. I guess in, from my own per, I'm really excited to have you on the show because you you take up a lot of the themes that I think are absolutely essential for forging a new left agenda in terms of how we relate uh, to black politics and socialism. Um, and so key to that cr- criticism, you know, that 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 Adolf talks quite a lot about. Is getting away from this this uh, this way that you know the the stream of black politics that you you uh, and intellectuals that you criticize and, and your uh, uh, compatriots criticize is this conflation of racial affinity with political constituency, and that seems to really that that uh, undoing that uh, false conflation really seems to be at the heart of your work. So maybe spell that out for us. Tell us where that comes from. And what kind of effects that has produced? Yeah, you know, I think the roots of it are in um, the ethnic paradigm, right, which, you know, had both academic and sort of popular uh, notoriety during the post-war period. And there's a lot of different reasons for that, right? Why Mm -hmm. this idea that we think about uh, American politics as being organized primarily along ethnic lines becomes a dominant way of thinking about uh, you know, American political life, right? So right. this notion of ethnic pluralism. Um, I think part of it stems from the changes that are taking place after World War II in terms of, of suburbanization, right? So as mm-hmm. these older uh, white ethnic enclaves are giving way to, you know, out-migration, you know, new suburbs are cropping up, um, there's concerns. I mean, I remember, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, Christian Parenti earlier. I remember his dad, Michael Parenti, published a piece I want to say in the either the late fifties, early sixties, um, um, dealing with just that, right? Like the right, the idea right. of what happens to these ethnic affinities once groups move out of of uh, central cities, and there was a you know a bit of a debate among political scientists and other social scientists over those kinds of of changes. Like, would would uh, the ethnic group cohesion and um, you know the political unity be lost right what something mm-hmm. that had really defined uh machine politics for uh for decades would that be lost now that they moved outside of uh inner cities and so you know there's that part of it right so within academia there's concerns about ethnic pluralism what are the implications for uh party politics 
And when you when you look at the the writings from Black Power, right from the Black Power period, right. so much of it draws on the assumptions of the ethnic paradigm, right? I mean, so much of it is based on this view that Blacks should pursue the same process of political incorporation that other groups had had used before them, right? Right, right. And in the process of making that that case, right, they smooth over a much more complex history of you know, of, of the, the 20th century and even earlier, right, where it wasn't just, you know, ethnic unity and affinity that allowed certain groups to, you know, uh, gain some upward mobility or achieve a better, a better station. But oftentimes it was interracial and interethnic alliances and, you know, right, right. trade unionism and, you know. Yeah, on uh, the job organization. Right? right. There are all sorts yeah. of other things going on, but the popular lore and again, abetted by some, you know, scholarship, suggests that it was really about, you know, ethnic group affinity. And so Black Power, at least the more moderate uh, elements of Black Power, uh, really uh, speak about that in a real direct way. I mean, it's in Carmichael and Hamilton, you know, Stokely Carmichael and and Charles Hamilton's Black Mm -hmm. Power. I mean, they use almost verbatim, right? They talk about, you know... uh, before a, a group can enter into society, they have to first close ranks, right? And and right. so they take care of their own before they can become fully integrated. And so they develop a, a what's on its surface seems like a militant black nationalism, but underneath it is just simply the same sort of ethnic uh, pluralist formula that we've heard before, right? And then I would even go a step further and say that even the more radical elements within the Black Power movement, right, who who talked in terms of the internal colony, right, this idea that, you know, the, the Black urban ghetto was, you know, for all intents and purposes, a colony. It, it functioned like a colony. The only difference was that it was actually in the mother country, right, and not in some distant periphery. Right. So instead of, you know, Algeria right. uh, being, you know, kind of outside of France, you had, an, uh, you know, an Algeria inside the United States. Right. That's with all the same colony, with all the same type. So that are you call you call that analysis by analogy. Analogy. That's right. That's yeah, right. Yeah. In, in terms of how that how the, the the anti-colonial struggle, which was, you know, I mean, I think you'll certainly agree, like a very valid and important moment mm-hmm. in world history. Uh, but but how that analogy of the anti-colonial struggle was uh, transposed onto the American context right. in a really direct and uncritical sort of way. Absolutely. And, and the thing about it is making a comeback, right? I mean, I've heard people oh, yeah. just in the last few years reach back and, you know, begin to use the, the colonial analogy again to talk about, you know, the black predicament mm-hmm. and, in a way which is just a historical, right? I mean, right. It was a problem in the 19, you know, 60s to use it, right? I mean, there were limits to to how well it explained what was going on, and people criticized it. There's all sorts of debates back and forth about the colonial analogy, but it had a certain political mm-hmm. import given the backdrop of anti-colonial struggles, you know, not just in Africa but around around the world, which many activists wanted to align themselves with, rightly so, right? right, right, um, right. You know, because this was was one way to to sort of uh, think through the consequences of, of American, you know, empire, American intervention abroad. And so it made sense at that particular moment to align, you know, to align the, the, the 
struggles of black people in the United States with those of, of uh, folks in other parts of the world. Sure, sure. But now, I mean, you know, it's almost like, uh, you know, people are talking almost as if the last, you know, five decades or so of integration and, um, and just deep change within American life just didn't happen, right? And I right, think right, right, the rise of the black political cl- uh, class and right, the centers, right. I mean, um, you know, at least in the nineteen, you know, nineteen fifties, early sixties, you could still talk about uh, a, a black urban ghetto which was class diverse. Oh, yeah. Even it looked like the changing. Battle of Algiers, you know, you could compare right. Montgomery, Alabama, to the Battle of Algiers in some senses, in a, in a direct way, and it and it worked back then. But using that decolonial uh, frame today uh, has a lot of uh, limitations. Right. Um, right. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it seems to me that you know that, that the problem is that one to one relationship. You know that that the, the, the black ghetto is. Uh, colonialism, and we need to wield, you know, wage an anti-colonial struggle because there's 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 something else there. I think if you if you if you contextualize American domestic policy with the broader anti-colonial struggle, you actually see something very different. You yeah. actually see it's not Stokely Carmichael that is necessarily the bearer of the results of the anti-colonial struggle. Right. It's uh, LBJ's Great Society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that that that's it's it's the civil rights uh, initiative coming from the federal level that is the direct result of the kind of uh, contradictions uh, that 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 were raised through that moment in terms of trying to uh, squelch and integrate uh, the militancy that that arose. So maybe start there and tell us a little bit about the Great Society and and and, and what kind of transformation uh, that produced. I loved. One of the quotes in your book, in the introduction, you use this in an article elsewhere. You say, you quote Daniel Patrick Monaghan, who right. produced the famous Monaghan Report. Right. In 1969, sometime after his report, he says, Very possibly the most important long-run impact of the community action programs of the 1960s will prove to have been the formation of an urban Negro leadership echelon at just the time when the Negro masses and other minorities were verging toward extensive commitments to urban politics. And then he says, this is great. Tammany, as in Tammany Hall, at its best or worst, would have envied the political apprenticeship provided the neighborhood coordinators of the anti-poverty program. So tell us a little bit about those patronage networks and how they came up. Yeah, so, I mean, one of the things that I think uh, in that original, you know, an earlier book um, that I was working uh, against was this notion of co-optation, right? You know, we get the sense that somehow, you know, 1960s is these popular black movements, the black freedom struggle, as some people like to use that that language, which I think is a problem. Um, and then from the outside is the state, right? The state steps in and either represses or, you know, co-opts certain parts of, of the movement um, right, and therefore, right, right. you know, diffuses it. And... Part of what what I came to terms with, you know, there's a thread of this in Reed's work. Reed talks about the uh, the Model Cities program as well as the um, the uh, community action, you know, agencies of the of the uh, of the um, the war on poverty. And what became clear, right, from Reed's work, but also kind of diving deeper within post-war uh, African American political history, is that you know you already had a, a, a a small black professional and managerial class. You know, Robert Mm -hmm. Allen talks about this in uh, Black Awakening in Capitalist America. 
that you still had, you know, in, in the post-war period, you already had this group. Um, and there's a lot of great work on this, right? I mean, I think Preston Smith's book on housing policy in Chicago um, from 1940 to 1960, he really lays out clearly, right? And Chicago, of course, is, is sort of an exceptional example just because Chicago already had a black submachine in, in motion for most of the 20th century, right? You know, so much earlier than a lot of other places. But it becomes clear that, you know, it's not it's not like after uh, Brown and after the Voting Rights Act and, and, you know, the reforms of the 1960s that all of a sudden there's a black professional managerial class, that it's there already. Mm-hmm. Um, and even before black power becomes uh, a popular phrase, you know, the state is already orchestrating, you know, a particular form of black power, right? They're using words like empowerment in um, in the Johnson administration circles, right? They're talking right. about uh, maximum feasible participation, right? So they already have a particular strategy in place. And, um, you know, and that's been what's, what's sad is when you read a lot of the work on black power, they totally ignore that, right? I mean, yeah. so many authors totally ignore the way in which, you know, black power not only was an expression of, of um, you know, grassroots or local uh, outrage and, you know, um, dis- not despair, but just disappointment with the, the, uh, the reach of, of uh, civil rights reforms. But it was also something that was, you know, managed and supported from above. Right. And I think that's right. that's what I was trying to get at. There's other folks that I think have done a much better job in terms of giving the the fine grain, right? I mean, Kent Germany's um, New Orleans After the Promises is just an excellent treatment of what the war on poverty looked like uh, in that city and the ways that it actually, it it really helped to, um, you know, to create this generation of of post-Jim Crow uh, black political elites, right? You know, and... um, You know, Megan French Marcelin is another person who's doing some great work, uh, which you'll see, you know, in the the near future, um, which which also talks about New Orleans as a case. And you you get to see there's much more complex set of relationships between um, the great society and the beginnings of black politics as we know it. Right. That it's not just you know, it's not just a simple story of, you know, the Panthers. You know, everybody wants to talk about the Panthers and and. um, the groups that we like, but there, there are a lot of other uh, maneuvers that are happening at the very same time that we should pay close attention to. Now, do you think they ignore the, the role of the state because it contradicts or it somehow goes against their organic struggle narrative? That and I mean, so the the narrative that you'll get if you go to a, a political meeting or, or something along those lines, or or hell, mm-hmm. even in, in a lot of um, say African American studies cl- courses, or certainly in cultural studies courses or other other places like that, you'll get this narrative that um, you know, uh, LBJ and, and and the rest of you know the Washington elites and so on were just you know these insufferable racists which they were which they were (laughs) right let's not let's not minimize that they were right right but 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 that does too much work in the analysis their personal racism does too much work in uh trying to you know assess uh how how things kind of turned out and so the narrative goes this sort of uh uh you know organic militant black power struggle forced the hand 
mm-hmm. of these policymakers to deliver some crumbs, right? Right to 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 keep the people to keep the masses happy. And the narrative that you you produce, I think, is so important because it paints a different picture. And that you you seem to argue that the Black Power generation came up in a in a in a in an environment where these great society policies had already shaped them in really profound ways to lead them towards these elite brokerage politics. So mm-hmm. maybe let's go there. Let's talk about how uh, this turn to elite brokerage uh, model uh, kind of came about uh, following the Black Power moment. Yeah, I mean, I think I think so. Uh, the great society strategy, right? Um, you know that we see in the community action dimension is part of it. Um, the other part of it, I mean, we could say, you know, is 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 in the civil rights movement itself, right? Which already has highly visible um, leaders, spokespersons, right? So there's some dynamics there as far as like, um, even again, within the organizations that we think of as heroic, where uh, there's a representational dimension that, um, you know, that is important, right? I'm not against the idea of leadership. I'm not so, you sure, know, sure. so... Uh, naive as to think that leaders don't matter, right? That, you know, you need people who take the, who take initiative. You need people who uh, dedicate their time, you know, and and it has to be, you know, important and effective divisions of labor within organizations. But I think, um, you know, so there's that, right? That's already, that's already present, even as the great society is, is unfolding. And I think it just, you know, there's a nexus there, right? The two come together and it's not, it's not surprising that you know, Bobby Seale, you know, before the Panthers was involved in, in uh, community action within Oakland, right? You know, it's not, it's not surprising that Kenneth Gibson um, and even people you wouldn't even think about, like the scientist Neil deGrasse Tyson, his dad was, was the head of, of uh, you know, HARU, which was uh, Harlem uh, Youth Opportunities Unlimited, right? The community action uh, program in in um, New York, right? So you had all of these different uh, black figures who were involved, and I think the thing to keep in mind is that it's not, you know, I'm not saying this to to try to sully these people, right? I right, mean, right, absolutely. Yeah. Like anybody, yeah. right? They're trying to figure out how do we solve the problems, you know, block by block, you know, yeah. within the neighborhood, and they're seeing this flood tide of resources come their way, you know, from, from the federal government, maybe not a flood tide, but you know, resources that they didn't have before. It's something right. Whereas before it was nothing, you know? Right. And so, you know, you could see why they would, they would uh, engage that. I mean, even, even Amiri Baraka, right. Who's one of the more, um, you know, legendary figures for a lot of Mm -hmm. good and bad reasons of that period. Um, You know, Baraka made use of, of, uh, you know, community action support. Right. I mean, right. the black it's, arts repertory theater uh, in school, you know, had a relationship with with uh, huh. with that kind of federal funding. So I think, you know, we to me, if we're going to take a mature understanding of of not only black politics uh, historically, but just, you know, to think about um, American political life and all of its its complexity, we got to spend time thinking about those kinds of relationships um, and not out of fear. Right. Because I think, you know, again, that sort of funding helped to to uh, to open the door for all sorts of more militant action. Right. I mean, once people had a space to organize and, you know, rooms that where they could meet and, you know, resources where they could hold public, you know, public uh, events, 
it opens the door to, you know, a, an entire, almost a decade long uh, period of really intense organizing. And, you know, we could debate the, the, uh, the merits of some of the stuff that was done. But, you know, I don't think the relationship between state support and popular struggle is always as antagonistic as uh, we might assume under these narratives of co-optation and, and, uh, and repression. That's very interesting. Yeah. So it's the, the narrative you're developing. It's like, you know, the state funding of this movement and the way that they seeded the ground for this new generation of leaders. Uh, it was really important and instrumental to what, ca- what came of it. But as with all things, we're good mm-hmm. Marxists here. Right. Uh, it, it always springs up a, a set of contradictions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it seems like to me, you know, a lot of people might read your work in a very surface level or partisan way and say, like, well, how dare you vilify these people? Right. You know, in some sense, in some cases, they gave their lives for this. And, you know, I mean, clearly you're not doing that. It's a very sympathetic read of these people, I think. It's mm-hmm. nuanced and careful. But what you are trying to do is I think it's the opposite of vilification. You're trying right. to put these people in their context. They're not superheroes or supervillains or flawed, tragic, you know, he, uh, figures. Uh, they, they came out of a specific kind of context. And so that's the opposite of vilification. That's humanization. Right. It seems to me. And, 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 and that's on the individual level. On the collective level, we have to look at the co- historical context, you know, to look at the, to weigh the good with the bad mm-hmm. and see what kind of structural contradictions come out of this type of uh, relationship so that maybe we can do better in the present and in the future. And I think that's why your work is so important there. Yeah. And I mean, I think one of the problems, you, know, you point out the, how the new contradictions, you know, come to the fore um, to the extent that you know, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, um, you know, others within the Johnson administration really came to, you know, the policies they prescribed with this sense of blacks as an organic constituency, right? Right, right. That they helped to reinforce, you know, uh, and maybe even entrench, you know, the notion of, of an organic black public, you know, uh, undifferentiated by class and ideology and different um, positions. And in a way which, you know, which carries over into black power, mm-hmm. but uh, it's still with us. Right. And I mean, I think that's Absolutely. that's a contradiction we haven't really reckoned with. Um, we're still we're still sort of fighting against that. Right. You know, when I mentioned the, the notion of the black freedom struggle um, and I don't understand why people have such a difficult time hearing the criticism of it. Right. I mean, to me, it's, it's a notion that sh- that's used by people who should know better. Right. They're folks who are offering class analysis in one moment, but then abiding uh, a a category, you know, a a way of talking about history, which smooths over the very class contradictions that they want us to to take note of. And what's also interesting, I mean, that comes from, you know, that, that, uh, that whole phrase comes from, uh, from Martin Luther King's writings, as far as I know, right? I mean, King uses the notion of the freedom struggle in his, his descriptions of, the Southern desegregation campaigns, but he's very specific, right? You know, the freedom struggle for him is what they're doing actively in, you know, Montgomery and, and Selma and other places, you know, at that particular moment. So if you look at stride towards freedom, right, that's the, that's the language he's using and he's using it. We should be clear as somebody who's, you know, essentially at that moment, a liberal integrationist, right? So he he Mm -hmm. wants to see Jim Crow overturned. What's interesting is when he moves to Chicago, right, to begin the Chicago campaign, he refers to it as the Chicago freedom struggle, right? So again, 
it's really a marker of a particular historical moment. It's the chosen language of one figure out of many, right, other figures. And yet now we see academics use it over and over again to describe not just the civil rights movement, but black power and everything that's come since. And even going back into the early 20th century, right, you know, somehow it's a convenient way to talk about um, black political life, but it does so much damage. You know, and that's why I prefer you know, uh, the work of Toure Reed and, you know, Preston Smith and, um, you know, people like Michelle Boyd who talk about yeah, black yeah. political life um, in real time and space. And I think that's the only way that we should do it. Um, if we if we really want to talk about black people as human beings, right? If we want to right, talk right. about uh, African-Americans as having the same capacities and, and um, you know, possibilities and limitations as all other people yeah they're not magical (laughs) something something that uh you know my comrade rl stevens points to a lot you know he's Mm -hmm. black people are not magical i am not magical my people are not we're just like everybody else we we disagree we fall on class distinction actually as you know probably far better than I do. There's far more class differentiation inside the uh, black America than there is inside of white America in terms of, you know, from top to bottom and the skew right. there right. between the super rich and, and, and the rest of the folks. Um, yeah. One of my, one of my favorite quotes uh, from Harold Cruz, and there's a lot of differences I have with Cruz as a, as a figure, right? I right. think I said to a friend of mine recently, I think he asked a lot of the right questions. He just provides mostly the wrong answers. Right. <laughs> <It's> a, <laughs> But uh, but there's one moment right where he's reflecting on his time in the uh, in the Communist Party, and he takes a, uh, a moment to to criticize his old comrades, and he says that um, you know his problem uh, with American Marxists, who he's really talking about people like Herbert Aptheker and a few other folks who he didn't like. Um, he says the problem with American Marxists is that they can they can only see blacks at the barricades. Right. That they they don't Uh, see blacks as a people with classes and class interests. And um, now Cruz takes that. Right. So he 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 rebuffs those on the left who can't see the complexities. But then, you know, he then takes the fact of class diversity in a weird direction. Right. He basically then begins to to endorse this idea of you know, the responsibility of black elites, right? You know, right, to, right. to lead, that that's the problem for him is that... Um, that they're not leading effectively or in the right, right direction. Right, right, He doesn't, as, as you raise in your book, he doesn't problematize the very notion of elite brokerage nah. uh, leadership strategy. He just says those elite brokers are doing it wrong. <laughs> right. You need to do it better. <laughs> right, and he assumes that's the natural order, right? That, that there's elites, there's nothing we could do about that. Um. But yeah, I mean, I think we're still stuck in that moment as far as, you know, only seeing blacks at the barricades, right? And I mean, I'm sure you've had conversations like this too when you try to, to um, you know, offer uh, this class analysis of black life, right? Yeah, yeah. And you run into a brick wall of, of uh, you know, ideological, you know, hegemony essentially where people really believe, right? They have to believe that black people are magical, yeah. that they are the moral, you know, the moral compass of America as a, as a uh, nation and that racial conflict is central to American life, right? That it is right. the, the only axis that matters. Um, and, you know, any, any time spent in a library studying the 19th century, studying Reconstruction with a really close 
uh, gaze. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Reveals a, a much more uh, troublesome, complex. Yeah. <laughs> right. A much more yes. troublesome reality. Right. Yeah. And so. Uh, I mean, the slaves were not always heroes, and that's okay. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I mean, I, I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday about this kind of thing because I'm actually going to go into the archives uh, mm-hmm. this summer. And, and look at some of these writings that are coming out, not only from, uh, you know, black elites and, and leaders in that time, but also folks in the white, the readjusters movement that you talk, right. you've written about and the populace and things like that. And, and, um, you know, I was telling a friend of mine, I said, you know, I hope that in a hundred years time, if, you know, the earth hasn't fallen into the, been swallowed up by the sun. Rather, <laughs> right, right. I hope in a hundred years time, people see me as a coward rather than a hero, because at least they will then know that I was a human. Right. And they will see me for my humanity and my flaws and the way that I was just a product of my time. Right. Rather than, you know, projecting their futuristic, assuming that things, you know, the arc of justice bends in that direction. (laughs) You know, we might be seeing a hellscape from back. They might look back and say, like, man, they were doing a good job. But, you know, but uh, there's no libraries left to tell our story. right? That's right. That's right. Somebody smuggled away one of your books, you know, hidden under a floorboard somewhere so that Gestapo <laughs> couldn't get to it. I don't know what kind of future we're going to have, but whatever that future is, I hope they see us as cowards, as products right. of our time, rather than these, you know, uh, these these magical beings that were so virtuous. Um, yeah, so I want to talk, you cite Harold Cruz in the introduction to your book, uh, your Revolutionaries to Race Leaders book. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Harold Cruz was an early uh, black political leader and intellectual and really important figure in the movement for, I think, a lot of folks, millennial types. A lot of my listeners will will have never heard of that name before. So hopefully they'll be introduced to it through your your writing. Um, But Cruz really gets to a topic that is still incredibly live on the left right now. Okay, I'm going to read I'm going to read the epigram you, you, you mentioned here. Uh, Cruz writes, the Negro movement represents an indirect challenge to the capitalist status quo, not because it is programmatically anti-capitalist, but because full integration of the Negro in all levels of American society is not possible within the present framework of the American system. And so there's a certain there's an argument there that was taken up in a recent debate between Adolph Reed and Paul Heidemann and Jonah Birch. And part of that took place on the pages of Jacobin Magazine and the other part, uh, his uh, Adolf's response took part on non-site. Mm-hmm. And the underlying argument there was that, um, was that there's something about Black Lives Matter that is inherently revolutionary. Because if they get their wish, um, even though the movement itself is not programmatically anti-capitalist, the full integration of black folks in America will necessarily undermine, uh, you know, neoliberalism and American capitalism. And Adolf has, uh, you know, had a really sharp uh, rebuttal uh, to that to say, you know, it seems like neoliberalism uh, can fully incorporate all Mm -hmm. ranges of identities and ethnicities uh, without, you know, uh, overturning the inequalities and and, and so on and so forth that that structure that. So tell us about Cruz and how you think that that is still, you know, kind of taken up today. Yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate, right? I mean, I think Cruz was being really specific, right? He's, he's speaking mm-hmm. again to uh, a particular juncture, right, where the Southern desegregation campaigns um, are, are unfolding. They seem to be uh, achieving some, some headway. But among the, the cohort of folks that Cruz represented, right, these people who at that point 
in the late 1950s, early 60s, were even referring to themselves as the new Afro-American nationalists, right? You would see that, that, that sort of language in the pages of the Liberator uh, magazine and other places. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they saw themselves as critics of the, uh, the civil rights movement, right? You know, and they thought that liberal integration was, was ill-fated, right? And they had reason to believe that. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. there's, uh, when you're listening to those, those, you know, Malcolm X speeches from around the same times that Cruz is writing, um, you know, when, when Malcolm X is, is uh, in the, the uh, message to the grassroots, right, at the, at the, the uh, grassroots leadership conference in, in Detroit, when he's making these arguments against the, the utility of, of uh, you know, nonviolent civil disobedience and liberal integration as a goal, you know, there's reason, there's reason to believe that it's not going to happen, right? Because they, they are being met with all sorts of uh, not only violence in the Deep South, but, you know, um, you know sluggish and, you know, uh, spineless <laughs> leadership. Oh, yeah. In, in different parts of the country, right? So you're and suggesting in, in Cruz's time, in Cruz's time, that integrationist uh, demand was more militant. Uh, yeah. It was less a part of the fabric of the dominant ideology and political, uh, you know, uh, regulation at the time. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't, you know, now we can kind of take it for granted. But I think at that moment, there's a, there's a, uh, you know, he's speaking at a, in a moment of uncertainty, and he's also, you know, I think this is where some of the residual Marxist argument comes in, because Cruz, you know, even though he's he's a, he's primarily remembered as a black nationalist, I would argue that, you know, throughout his life, he does remain committed to the idea of socialist revolution in the United States. He just he just believes that people have been, um, you know, wrong in how they've gone about thinking of it, right? That they've tried to import ideas from other places and other times uncritically. Right. And, um, and there's other people who are saying the same thing during, the, during that period, right? You know, if you read James Boggs and other folks, they're also saying we have to come up with a, a more homegrown notion of, of socialist transition, right, and politics that doesn't just draw on the Russian experience or Cuba or some other place which is dissimilar, but it has to be attuned to the fact that America is, you know, one of the most highly developed uh, capitalist, you know, um, societies, right? And and it has to take into account those those problems um, and those peculiar dynamics. So I think, you know, back to you know the question of of uh, Paul and Jonah and their, and their exchange with Adolf. I mean, I think the problem I had with their piece is the same problem I have when people evoke. C.L.R. James's words doing again the same sort of period, yeah, yeah. where he talks about um, you know the, the black movement and you know its its importance. I mean those those are comments that he's making at that particular moment. I don't think I don't think James and I certainly don't think Cruz meant for those comments to refer to all times, right? Yeah. You know they were they were journalistic comments which now are taken up as political theory. Uh, and I don't, I don't think that we should, we should make that that mistake, right? I mean, you know, uh, when we think about this moment right now with Black Lives Matter, you know, to come back to your other point, um, you know, it's, it's as Adolf points out, it's quite possible for, <laughs> for, uh, you know, um, 
some concessions to be made for, uh, you know, anti-racist politics to sit um, at the heart of, of power to be incorporated. I think that's why so many people are facing withdrawal right now, because we lived through eight years in which there was some elements of, you know, multiculturalism that were very much a part of the mm-hmm. Obama administration. Uh, even as the neoliberal agenda of Obama was, you know, going full tilt and he did a lot of the things that would have been opposed in previous administrations, but he was able to, to get away with it. So I think that, um, you know, Adolf is right in saying that. I would also argue that, you know, Black Lives Matter, you know, is not as, as revolutionary as it could be. Just as I would say that the Black Panther Party was not as revolutionary as it could be. I know that's hard for people to swallow, right? Because the idea is that they are the high watermark yeah, of, yeah. Um, you know, black political life. But here's the, here's the problem for me, and this is alluded to in the Catalyst uh, piece. You know, during their, their uh, height of popularity, right, the, the Black Panther Party um, was popular, but didn't necessarily have uh, what I would argue is sort of, um, you know, uh, they hadn't built popular consensus around their notion of revolution, right? Mm, mm. So, you know, there's large swaths of the American population during the 1960s who uh, support the Panthers, who, you know, will show up at their rallies, who will funnel money towards their defense campaigns. But there are millions more Americans who don't really care, Right. They see this as some, maybe they're entertained by it, but they see this as like an isolated concern of black people in, in the ghetto, right? Right, right. Um, and even with Black Lives Matter now, you know, there's there many Americans who probably have seen the videos of uh, Philando Castile or, you know, uh, Alton Sterling, and they are totally repulsed by this. Will they take to the streets? Maybe not, right? right Will they right. join an organization locally that's, that's trying to reform? Uh, police, you know, uh, policies, probably not, right? So there's a there's a large portion of the American population which hasn't been engaged by many of these these movements, right? And unlike the civil rights movement, which at least if you go back and look at public opinion polls, you know, it changed American uh, opinions. By the 1960s, most Americans believed in in the idea uh, ideal of integration, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it, it wouldn't stay that way. And that didn't preclude, uh, you know, protest against, um, you know, Ruby Bridges or right, protest right. in Boston when it came to, to busing policy. So it's not that they were, it, it, it didn't really touch all of the American population, but it did right. build a popular consensus. And I think that's one of the things that irks me about some of these contemporary discussions of, of the left, right? I mean, until we actually reach beyond, um, you know, the blacks who are at the barricades, the right, right. those of us who show up at organization and activist meetings um, on a regular basis, and people who, you know, are, are either contented with what we have right now, or they don't really see an alternative, right? Until we build, you know, beyond our own circles and into these other layers of American society, I just don't really, I mean, I'm actually kind of jaded. I don't really see much happening right and i think we get distracted by um you know 
social media activity and the aesthetics right? and the imagery. Yeah, of the a lot moment. of that. You man. know, you talk a lot about that in your piece. I think that's what's so important here is the the parallels in your piece. You write uh, this crucial distinction between movement notoriety and Ooh. actual popular power is conflated within the scholarship and folklore of black power. And it seems to me like, correct me if I'm wrong here, this is, did you take this up as a way to take on Black Lives Matter without seeming like you're taking on (laughs) Black Lives Matter? And I'm not going to call you a coward for doing that. That's just smart. (laughs) (laughs) This is an allegory, right? I mean, although you argue against allegory in a certain way, you got to know about history and context, right? So you do a lot of historical contextualization. I don't want to say this is allegory. But you're doing something like that here, it seems like. I think what happens, you know, it's one of those moments where you're on route to an argument and then, you know, for whatever reasons, you don't really put the fine, you know, exclamation yeah, yeah. point on it. But I'll, I'll come back to it later and make sure that it's, it's, uh, it's clear in the next iteration. Maybe it's best you didn't, though, because, I mean, you know, it's kind of like other arguments that we might have around some of your other work. You know, it doesn't matter what the policy argument is. If, if you understand the history and the context and the analysis, the policy just naturally flows from there. Right. Uh, so there's a way in which we can argue on the surface about policies and positions. But mm-hmm. if we don't get the context right underneath, uh, you know, none of that matters. Maybe let's wrap up with a cautionary tale. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So one of the compar- the direct comparisons you make uh, between Black Lives Matter and the Black Power movement is with the uh, Black, uh, the new, what's the, the agenda for Black Lives uh, that mm-hmm. just came out. There's sort oh, of the political, visions, plat- yeah. the vision for Black Lives. It was a platform. It had a, a lot of really great positions, really important stuff. I think a lot of social Democrats even were really impressed by the way they took on economic and class issues as well. Mm-hmm. But you 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 you're concerned about that approach, and you draw uh, an allusion to the 1972 uh, national black political agenda in Gary, Indiana, and you talk about some of the pitfalls and divisions that sprung from there as a, as a warning for the Black Lives Matter movement. So maybe tell us, take us back to 1972, and dr- let's draw some constructive parallels to wrap up here. Yeah. So the uh, the 1972 National Black Political Convention. Um, you know, really, you know, it's, it's a historic moment, right? I mean, I think uh, Manning Marable, you know, the late Manning Marable referred to it as like the, uh, you know, the zenith of, of the Black Power period, right? You know, um, mm. and, you know, it, it was a, in just the optics of it, a really wonderful um, congregation of, of all sorts of different tendencies within um, black political life at that particular moment. And uh, as a graduate student, I had a chance to interview a lot of the, the uh, architects and, and organizers of that, uh, that meeting, you know, and even, even attended a reunion that they had in, uh, in Gary. Um, and so, you know, it's an important moment. But I think, you know, it also, you know, what, what, what's missing usually, usually celebrated as like this important in-gathering of all these different political forces but then lose sight of some of the um, the underlying problems, right? That it didn't really hold together. You know, even during the meeting, there were walkouts. Um, the Michigan delegation, led by Coleman Young, walked out um, after they felt they were mm-hmm. they were slighted. You know, um, in one moment, um, and even before the meeting was held, I mean, uh, you know, uh, Roy Wilkins, who was then the head of the NAACP 
you know, condemned the meeting, right, as being orchestrated by black nationalists. And he, he rejected uh, some of the language in their initial preamble, which was mm-hmm. written by, uh, you know, Bill Strickland and uh, Vincent Harding was, was one of the other uh, authors, right? Okay. So you, what you had was this, this attempt by black nationalists. Let me back up a little bit. What they really wanted to do was have this national unity meeting. And there had been a number of conferences throughout the late 1960s, you know, these black power conferences that were held uh, in Newark. There was one in, uh, in Bermuda, which was kind of a fiasco. And, uh, and then there was the, the Congress of African Peoples meeting in, uh, in Atlanta in 1970. And at each of these meetings, right, I mean, one of the things black nationalists want, uh, people like Amiri Barak, is they really want to try to, to uh, mobilize Right, this sort of nascent power of black people as voters um, in different parts of the country into a national black political party. That's what they are dreaming of at that mm-hmm. particular moment. And you know, for establishment pop, pop, politicians, sorry, uh, establishment politicians at that moment are really against this idea, right? Because you know they are very much you know uh, dependent upon the relationships they are trying to forge with the Democratic Party at that time. And so there's a there's a bit of a loggerhead, uh, yeah, loggerheads over this um, this idea of the black political party. Most elected officials don't want it. Uh, civil rights organizers and people who fought for integration see it as divisive. Right. But black nationalists really think that this is the way to go because, mm-hmm. you know, as they say in the, the preamble to the Gary... Uh, the Gary Declaration, um, you know, both parties have taken us for granted, right? Um, and so the idea of a black political party is, is um, you know, is, is popular with, with a lot of black nationalists. And some of them point to the Lowndes County Freedom Organization right, right. and the Mississippi Freedom Democrats as, you know, immediate examples of black people sort of organizing themselves and then, you know, demanding uh, concessions or, you know, engaging in elections in an autonomous manner. And so the Gary Convention is a bit of a compromise, right? The Gary Convention comes about as a way to bring everybody together um, in the hopes that it might lead to some sustainable organization. Uh, and it does not, right? I mean, you know, mm. the, the National Black Political Assembly is created out of Gary. And it, it lasts, you know, it, it lasts for mu- much of the 19... 19- 70s, and then uh, the National Black Independent Political Party is created out of the the National Black Political Assembly. But by the time that happens, I mean, it's been reduced primarily to diehard activists and people who really support the idea of an independent party. Um, Most elected officials have distanced themselves from the organization. And what becomes clear to me, you know, uh, in in studying that particular episode, is that again, you know, can you really organize along this purely ethnic affinity, right? The idea that somehow there is a, a you know, a, an equivalence of black identity and black constituency, right? That right, can hold. Right. And the answer, you know, for me is no, right? That right. there are many different interests, right, that are operating within the black population at any given moment. And whenever we have these sort of national agenda setting exercises, what you get is, is uh, you know, um, a portrait of some of the different things people want. 
but it's not really a functioning agenda, right? And I think the same is true for this visions agenda. There's a lot of great things in it. Um, unlike the people like Gary, who were, you know, black mayors and, and uh, black nationalists who had large organizations and, you know, at the time commanded, um, you know, huge followings. Right, right. I don't think the people who wrote the, the visions agenda are, are cut from the same cloth, right? I mean, they, they are, you know, activists, in some cases, entrepreneurs of, of sorts. There's certainly some good union folks who contributed to that agenda. And I, I, uh, I know that, you know, that what their positions are and they're consistent. But the idea that somehow you're going to have this sort of black agenda, which is going to become, um, which is going to materialize, you know, there's a lot of steps in between that, right? And yeah, and yeah. Uh, I just don't see people having thought that through uh, carefully. I don't think the, the, the organization is there. And again, for me, the fatal flaw is this assumption that somehow um, we should be organizing strictly along racial lines. I mean, if that was the case, if it was left up to only Black people to organize themselves, and I'm not saying this because I don't think Black people can organize if it was if that was the only strategy that worked, you know, I would probably still be in Louisiana. At best, I'd be a school teacher at a segregated school or I would be somewhere picking cotton or driving a bus. Right. Sure, sure. When we think about the civil rights movement, when we think about the, uh, you know, the, um, you know, the, the union struggles of the interwar period. I mean, these were interracial struggles. Right. And they That's weren't right. perfect. The ones that succeeded were, you know, yeah, that's, the, they most, had to that's be. the most crucial thing. If, if you the ones that succeeded were in most every case necessarily uh, inter, uh, interracial. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. And, and I'm not saying it's easy. Right. It's, it's difficult. It's difficult even if you're in a group of people of all the same ethnic background to try to organize. But um, I think at this particular moment, you know, now more than ever, uh, we should be thinking in those terms, like how do we build popular power? And, you know, what's interesting is the, you know, not only with the exchange I had with, with Ta-Nehisi Coates, you know, but with a few other people, you know, in the midst of that, um, there's always this tendency to evoke the New Deal and its limitations as a way of silencing the possibility of, of yeah, yeah. interracial struggles and, um, you know, universal public policy or even, you know, a socialist uh, horizon, right? Right. There's always the, the use of the New Deal. And what's, what's odd about that, right? This is the thing that kind of bothers me about it, is, you know, why do, we, why do we feel that the conditions people lived through and struggled under in the 1930s, right? Are the same ones. Are the same ones that we face now, right? right. I mean, why does that become more of a rhetorical right. uh, strategy, a conversation killer to bring up the, the New Deal you know, and not even not be willing to talk about, you know, the the, the complexities of the New Deal. Right. right. Like or that, or was, that the, the coalition that that was, you know, that was cohered in the 1930s. Right. Included the, the Dixiecrats, the, right. the, the would be right. Dixiecrats, Dixiecrats who were open, vile, racist and right. segregationists, you know. Absolutely. Uh, and and that, that was a very fragile coalition that was um that was cohered in that moment, which it, just, it was dismantled, you know, in the 1950s and 60s. Absolutely. And we don't, so we, it's not to say that all the racists don't exist anymore. Of course they do. I mean, my God. But at the same right. time, you know, 
there's no indication that if, if a new deal would crop up again, that there would be a significant segregationist element inside of right. that coalition, which would mean the exclusion of broad swaths of rural and Southern America. Right. And that's a joke. Nobody believes that. Right. Uh, so it's very, yeah. I mean, I did a show early, early on uh, when I just began and it was called down with the neoliberal woke collective. <laughs> and I, uh, and I, we took on uh, my guest, and I took on this piece that was out of Vox magazine by this guy Zach Beecham that was arguing that you know, well, social democracy is necessarily racist and xenophobic because, well, yeah. look at Europe, you know, without any context, without any discussion of the forces involved and the decimation of the social democratic pro uh, project through neoliberalism and competition yeah. and austerity and all these other sort of forces, they just want to draw a straight line from social democracy to racism. It also just silences, you know, legions of black people who supported yeah, yeah, yeah. social democracy, who supported socialism, you know, uh, not just in the United States, but, you know, different parts of the world. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm tired of hearing it. I'll, I'll be honest. I'm tired of hearing it. And actually, it's, 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 uh, it, it makes me a bit more, um, you know, fatalistic, right, or, or at least uh, pessimistic about, what lies ahead? Right? I think that was the most disappointing thing for me with the election. It wasn't to see um, Trump come to power. I mean, that was bad enough. Right. But it was the 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 disarray, the disillusionment, the naivete um, that so many people had about the election and about what was necessary, um, and what was what were the reasons why he won? Right. I mean, that was that was uh, you know it's disheartening just to watch that play out. And, um, you know, I'm looking at this point, I'm looking for signs of struggle. I mean, I know there's been great marches and demonstrations, you know, uh, since Trump's election. But, um, you know, looking for the kind of, of sobriety, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and commitment, you know, in, in everyday life, right? You know, and the people who I inter interface with, you know, in my union mm -hmm. and... Um, you know, people who I, I'm working with here in Chicago, I mean, that's where I have to anchor myself. Because otherwise, I mean, you know, you listen to some of the wild things that people are saying. I mean, we have a lot of learning to do about how to to uh, to be political creatures and how to actually demand and, and achieve the things that we want. Right. Right. A lot of people would listen to this. Uh, what you just said and, and the tone that I have throughout all of my episodes of my show and say, like, what the hell are you guys so depressed about? I mean, aren't we at a high aren't we at a high point in racial consciousness right now? I mean, my God, it's on the news every day. You know, we got a whole generation of teenagers who are woke as hell, you know, right. posting on Tumblr and Twitter all the time about how they hate racism and stuff like that. You know, but and that's all true. But I think like, you know, why your work is so important. Um, it really reveals that like a lot of that consciousness is really just kind of this pious deference to black power romanticism. Right. And it's really just a product and performance of white guilt. You know, that, that, that we need to have this pious, respectful deference to this history and this great legacy. And hold on, pause for a second while I wipe a tear out of my eye. You know, <laughs> you know and I'm not, I, don't, I don't mean to denigrate that time. I mean, my God, I, I, I admire that moment. I, I, I respect it as much as anybody. And I think it's incredibly important to learn from. But we got to learn what actually happened. Right. Not not these, uh, you know, cozy narratives uh, that make us feel good and, and give us a kind of affective 
cathartic release, you know, without any kind of substantive analysis and a theoretical strategy to follow it, it seems. Yeah, so one of the things I want to end on here is, is this podcast really exists to fight the culture wars. Uh, not not the, not to fight in the culture wars, but to fight, the, <laughs> but to fight the very notion that there has to be right. this cultural war and that the left needs to wage this kind of silly battle. And so it seems like you know your work really provides an excellent way to to think through what Adolf Reed calls this fundamental fallacy of solving a problem on the same terms under which the problem arose. That that you know the the, the problem of racism doesn't need to be solved by this performative anti-racism, right? That we need universal social programs to reverse the problem um, in, in an interesting way. So tell us real quickly as we wrap up here about your vision for what that might look like. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I agree with, with Adolf. Um, you know, how to, I think Adolf says elsewhere, he says something to the effect that, um, you know, uh, how do we organize around difference, right? I mean, when the, the more intuitive thing and what we've seen borne out in history that you organize around common uh, cause and common, you know, needs. And, you know, there's, there's, you know, for me, maybe if we want to end on a better note, the Sanders campaign was inspiring for those very reasons, right? I mean, there were things that you heard people talking about, um, uh, you know, on a, on a day-to-day basis, Right, that you hadn't heard in in decades, or at least in years. Maybe decades is too dramatic, right? Uh, but the ideas of you know free higher education um, from you know K through PhD, and there was a moment of dreaming, right, during during the Sanders campaign, um, with all of its limitations. But there was a moment when you heard people uh, discussing the possibility of organizing around the things that we want. Right, the kind of society we want, right. moving away from just a mode of critique of, of capitalism and all of its its limitations and contradictions, right, into what what we want to see here and what can we actually achieve in this particular moment, right? And you know, I thought I thought that uh, you know, for me, you know, it was a, it was an uplifting moment. I think that's what made it feel so painful to come crashing down, yeah. uh, beginning in the summer and then all the way through through November, right, is that you saw just something we hadn't seen in a long time, right? I mean, a a self-identified, you know, democratic socialist who was, who was a viable candidate. And, you know, I grew up, I was a child of the Cold War, right? I I had never, you know, had never heard of a a socialist candidate in a national debate not be vilified as a socialist, right? right? They couldn't really get away with that now in the way they would have you know, in the 1980s or the 19, uh, you know, 90s. And so it was an important moment, I think, uh, for us historically. But I think the the legwork, right, you know, because, you know, um, the legwork that needs to happen now uh, at the local level, you know, um, is, 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 is there, right? That it's, it's possible, it's hard, but it's, it's, it's within reach. And for me, you know, certain ideas like public works, in the genuine sense of, you know, a New Deal style public works where we see uh, publicly funded, publicly managed, you know, jobs programs, right? It could go a long way towards improving the cities that we live in. It could go a long way towards, you know, ending the kind of, of uh, 
unemployment, you know, and, and underemployment, right, and poverty that exists in so many parts of the country, that it will also be a way to, to uh, you know, to beautify the country. I mean, it's, there's, there's public parks that need to be, you know, renovated and refurbished, right? There are all sorts of, of uh, you know, derelict buildings and, and um, you know, public spaces that can be remade. And so, you know, I think there's a lot that can be done, not to mention the kinds of services that people need, right, which sure. can, again, be provided by folks um, through, through this sort of program. But, you know, to get there, we got to start with a sense of how this is going to benefit you know, the greatest majority of Americans. And I think, you know, being woke uh, is great for some people. <laughs> maybe that's going to be, you know, maybe that's somebody's entryway into yeah. a political yeah. life. And so I don't want to, I don't want to totally brush it off. But if that's where they, if that's all they get, right, is the sense that somehow, you know, uh, racial affinity and, you know, a kind of moral position is, is the stuff of politics then, you know, we've lost, it's right? Because end, right. it's Feel, a total It feels dead good end. in the moment, but it, it, it's, yeah, we, we have a model for that. <laughs> and in right. many ways, as you point out, the Black Panthers were in a much better position than we were in every sense of the, of the, of the you know, term. They were in a much stronger structural uh, material position than we were, and they still f- uh, fell flat in yeah. a lot of ways. And so we need to really get our act together. So, yeah, thanks so much, Cedric. I got to tell you, man, I've been devouring everything that you've written uh, over the past month or two, and I'm going to continue to follow your work. I'd like to have you back on the show to talk more about some of your coming research and stuff like that. It's a really important perspective. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of people there is a there is a, a growing uh, r- sort of consciousness of, of racial oppression in the United States, mm-hmm. and I don't want to I don't want to minimize that. It's really important, but I think folks like yourself. Are, are sorely needed in order to steer that analysis in a, in, a, in a more historically and strategically embedded direction. So thanks so much for joining us. I look forward to talking to you soon. All right. Thanks a lot. And that concludes my interview with Cedric Johnson. Once again, the article that we discussed and Catalyst Journal was called The Panthers Can't Save Us Now. And the book, which was out in 2007, is called From Revolutionaries to Race Leaders. It's an older book, well over 10 years old now, but it's incredibly relevant to the kind of political moment that we are facing today, particularly if you find yourself interested in black politics, the great society, the New Deal, you know, labor, uh, poverty policy, and all the rest of it, it's essential reading if you're doing activist work in those realms uh, because it really explains the kind of people that you're going to encounter along the way in these nonprofit foundations, in these kind of policy-oriented think tanks. So uh, thanks again to Cedric. We're going to have him on season two. He is writing furiously currently. We're working to align our schedules to make that interview happen. So everybody look forward to hearing a lot more from him on Dead Pundit Society very soon. Episode 3 of the Anti-Essentialism series is coming up soon. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Until then, Dead Pundit, out. Oh, this you crazy mother...